Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. This season, I am joined by a diverse group of thinkers and doers to explore how we can all create meaningful human experiences and make mindful decisions in the age of AI. Today, I'm beyond pleased to bring you Patrick Hall. Patrick is the principal scientist at bnh.ai, and he joins us to discuss science and law in the age of AI. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with uh, you and I used to be colleagues and did a lot Mm -hmm. of work in the early days about helping folks understand the basics of artificial intelligence and machine learning. But our audience may not be familiar. So tell us a little bit about your background and the mission of BNH.ai. Sure. So I should start off by saying I'm not a lawyer. That that should be the, <laughs> the first thing I say. So I'm I'm not a lawyer. I, I have a technical background. Um, my education was in math and chemistry and statistics. And you know, I, I worked at SAS. It was lovely. It was a lovely four years. And and sort of what I did there was really just basic machine learning, making machine learning tools for, for people to use. From there, I I transitioned to a software company called H2O.ai, where I was lucky enough to to work with another group of of very talented individuals. And we ended up bringing one of the first products for explainable machine learning and and with some bias testing for machine learning systems to market there. And and that was very exciting. And one, one thing I learned in that whole process is that if you want to use machine learning in, in these sort of high impact areas, which is yeah, that's typically where we want to use machine learning, that's where the biggest gains are. Um, you're going to have a lot of legal considerations, and and I was so struck by that, and and so struck by how it seemed like almost no one was aware of this outside of a few highly regulated spaces, such as in employment and and in consumer finance. That my business partner and I, Andrew Burt, who is an attorney who had experienced sort of the same phenomenon, but but from being the attorney that was constantly breaking data scientists' hearts, you know, <laughs> the, but because it's always at the very last stage of a data science project that someone thinks, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this could have some legal problems. And they often do. And, and then it's often up to some, you know, kind of poor attorney who got this dropped on their desk and doesn't really understand much of what's going on to say, hey, this is clearly problematic and we have to stop. So, I've been on the data science side of that. Andrew had been on the legal side of that. And um, we got together and started this firm, BNH.ai. This is awesome. And today I want to talk to you a little bit on both sides of that divide, both the data science and the legal side. I shouldn't really call them a divide. I, I don't know that that's the right, that's right. analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So shame on me right at the top of the discussion. Uh-huh. I saw a recent article about AI, and there was a mention which was attributed to the ethicist Giada Pastilli. And she said, a worrisome trend is the growing willingness to make claims based on subjective impression instead of scientific proof. Now, a few months ago, I reached out because you had written an article about the need to keep the scientific method alive in data scientists. So this comment and this subject has really struck a chord with me, given the profusion of let's call them highly suspect capabilities being attributed mm-hmm. to AI right mm-hmm. now. How does that resonate with you? And, and why is this a valid concern and an important point of discussion? Well, it really resonates with me. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to work with NIST, you know, National Institutes for Standards and Technology, and, and the time and, and, you know, the two years since we started BNH. And 
one of the things that we learned both working on the bias standard and the broader AI risk management framework is the massive role that bias and, and both systemic biases against minorities, against women, against you know any number of groups of people and, and really any group of people can experience discrimination, but, but we all know who tends to experience it the most, both in the real world and online, you know, th- those types of systemic biases mixed together with a really nasty set of human biases, like um, our, our tendency to anchor our, our thoughts to a number that we've seen before, something called the McNamara fallacy, which I find endlessly fascinating, named after you know, the, the famous government official and, and businessman McNamara, uh, who, who, who put forward all these ideas about automation and algorithms and collecting data that, that are mostly wrong, honestly. And, and we've just acted like they're right for decades. Uh, and, and then that combined with, with just statistical and modeling biases really creates this like pernicious mix of both human structural and mathematical problems that lead to AI systems just not working. And so on, on my side, I, you know, I, I, there was a recent paper coming out of fact ML conference, um, the fairness, accountability and transparency and machine learning conference that, that highlighted just, just fundamentally how many AI systems will not and cannot work because they're poisoned by, by these kinds of biases and, and many other issues. Um, and, and so, where where the scientific method comes in here is is we've known for for centuries really that that these types of biases are problems and if you don't address them they'll spoil your results and and i just see that reality woefully lacking in in the practice of data science mm-hmm. and for folks that are not familiar with it the mcnamara fallacy what are some of the the precepts that folks have maybe taken for granted that have really been proven really wrong, but still underpin a lot of the way that we approach data science and AI today. So, so basically the McNamara fallacy says that, that algorithmic automated decision-making and that data, you know, whether, you know, analog data written on paper or digital data is essentially better than other kinds of decision-making and, you know, uh, other kinds of information. And there's just, not much evidence to support that. I mean, unfortunately, humans are not great at making decisions either. Humans are not great at, at you know, being objective either. But, but all we're doing with computers usually is taking our own biases and automating them at scale. And, and so, of course, that doesn't really address any of the problems, right? And, and so I think the, the McNamara fallacy sort of allows us to act in biased ways faster and at broader scale than we used to be able to and say, look, we, you know, we ate our vegetables, we took our vitamins, we did machine learning, we did data-driven decision-making, when there's really not much evidence, especially in in social context, that machine learning does any better than simple models or, or sadly, even biased humans. So, so especially in, in social context, the, the evidence is really that AI and machine learning systems don't do better than simple models. And, and so I point to that as, as one primary place where, where we're falling back on the McNamara fallacy and not the scientific method. Mm-hmm. And something else you've referred to in the past, which I think is important and, and helps people think about this issue, there's a lot of discussion about the lack of 
comprehension in machine learning systems or AI systems broadly, Mm -hmm. which can show up in systems that emulate or mimic human responses, often very well, sometimes really convincingly, but they're not aware of context. They're not behaving in an intentional way. And I thought you maybe said it best when you said machine learning learns about data. Yeah. It doesn't learn about people or their behavior. Talk a little more about that. And again, why is that so important for everyone to keep in mind relative to these systems? Sure. And thank, thank you for bringing that up. And, and again, like it, it ties in with the McNamara fallacy. And yeah, ma- machine learning systems only learn about people or companies or whatever it is, to the extent that those things are accurately represented in data. And, and that's because machine learning learns about data. Machine learning is not like a child. It's not like a person. It doesn't have eyes and ears and a nose and a mouth. It's not kind of constantly looking around and understanding, you know, the effects of gravity or, or you know, <laughs> if I touch this hot thing, it hurts. It, it is really limited to learning from digital data sources. And, and so, of course, there's been this big controversy, which I had to run my mouth about on social media, where, where a Google engineer and a very accomplished engineer and, and an author of one of my favorite machine learning papers, actually, ha- has become convinced that, that a machine learning system is conscious. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is this is just not possible. There's no, and, and getting back to the scientific method, there's no concept validity in going from learning from digital to data to being conscious, right? We, we have to have a, a scientific hypothesis that would explain how learning from digital data would give rise to consciousness. And, you know, we, we don't have that. We, no, no one can explain to me how learning to predict the next word in massive amounts of digital data could, could give rise to consciousness, right? And, and so that, I, you know, I, I don't want to go on too much here, but I think that that is a really good example of of the lack of the scientific method in data science. You you have to have construct validity. You have to have a real hypothesis that is is verifiable to do science. Otherwise, it's just magic. Anybody can say (laughs) this machine feels alive, right? And and they're, they're free to say that. But it's not science unless there's a verifiable hypothesis that has been proven that makes sense that that bridges this gap from learning from databases to becoming conscious. And so I think that kind of magical thinking is oftentimes behind a lot of of what we may see as successes in, in data science and AI today. Yeah, and I think this tendency, right, the the beauty in big data is we can find a lot of patterns. There's a lot of insights, but you know, someone said to me recently, patterns aren't people. Yep. And what's valid, again, back to basic statistical <laughs> principles in the aggregate cannot then be localized to what a single person, single human, or even sometimes what a system will do, you know, next, you know, and- at the level of a single action or incident. And there's also a lot of what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, statistical coincidences that, yeah. that, that rear yeah. up. And, and, you know, sometimes we see what we want to see uh, in terms of doing that. And, and one area I've noticed this really coming to roost is this emerging, I don't know if I should call it a topic or a, a application that people like to call effective or emotive AI. And for folks who listen to this podcast, they know that I am on a perpetual rant about the fact that I tilt my head and 
flail around a lot does not mean that I'm depressed. But there have been this sort of multiple of systems that purport to do things like determining someone's, you know, potential work potential from their posture, or if a child is engaged in the classroom and going to be successful based on their basic body language, or what my personality is right from that body language. I think the, one of the more recent one was getting your mood or your emotional mm-hmm. state from your facial expression. And in most cases, the scientific basis for this is dubious at best. And I, I don't want to make any aspirations about people's you know good intent or lack thereof, but This seems to be another area where we can look at a lot of things in data and find some correlations if we look hard enough to tell us something that really isn't telling us anything and leading us down a path. And it looks magical. So I know you did some work or have been involved with some work with NIST on effective computing research. And again, is this another area where the magic of big data might be leading us down illusory, if not outright dangerous paths because of this lack of grounding in sort of science, if you will? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And and so not not to say that this is never possible, right? And, and not to say that machines being conscious is never possible and not to say that one day in 100 years we won't be able to have deep insights from people's faces or something like this. I I, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's fundamentally dubious, but but also I think it's also important to leave open the, the possibility that this hypothesis could one day be true, proven true just, just to be objective. And, and so that's why, why I say it that way. But in the work with NIST, you know, just really exhaustive literature review shows that, that psychologists do agree that your face can portray your emotional state, but that varies wildly across cultures, across ages, across demographic groups, across the same person at different times of day. And, and so there's, there's no, my understanding is, is, you know, psychologists might agree that, that your face can portray emotion, but, but not in some kind of way that can be learned by a computer systematically. And so we call this, this notion out pretty strongly, in fact, in a call-out box in the NIST SP-1270 bias guidance and, and say essentially that, that today it is mostly pseudoscience. It, it is mostly pseudoscience. And again, this gets back to the, this point I was making earlier, AI, machine learning, what they're good at is understanding digital data. They're understand. They're good at predicting when machines will fail based on digital signals. They're they're good at things that can be represented well by digital data. They are not good at making decisions about social outcomes. And I think that that you know, I, I being in DC, I know that public policy you know professionals are becoming very aware of this, right? And so I think it's it's more having the general public get this understanding that that just because you a company says. You know, if you play a game on your phone, you'll be a good employee. You know, it, it's really the McNamara fallacy that, that leads us to, to believe that that's true, right? Like there, there's not much scientific evidence. There's no construct validity. There's no common sense way to go from a video on your phone today tells whether you will be a good employee in 10 years, right? That It's just magical thinking to go from mm-hmm. video today to good employee in the future, and AI is not magic, and and I like I I think a lot of my sentiments can can be boiled down to that. Um, it's not magic, and when there's success, it's either because people have followed the scientific method diligently for a long time, or they got lucky. And and I think we see both happening sometimes. So 
With that in mind, then, what does it look like if you are participating on a team being asked to or trying to develop an AI-driven system, maybe it's a machine learning algorithm, are there just basic steps or guidance you can yes. provide to them to ensure they're taking their actions and the decisions they are basing, you know, on these AI system outputs are in fact on solid statistical and scientific ground? Yes. So this this sounds weird to say, but like what the internet calls data science is not science as, as far as I can tell. So, so one, you know, this idea that we take whatever data is available, whatever observational data and statisticians have understood for a very long time that drawing conclusions from observational data is very, very fraught, like you mm-hmm. brought up earlier. So, so this idea that we take whatever observational data is available, pour it into a black box model that we don't really understand how it works. Um, and then essentially in that same data set, look at some basic accuracy statistics and, and decide that the system works. That's just not science. You know, there's well-known notions with drawing conclusions on observational data. Like I said, um, the hypothesis that, that we're trying to form is not verifiable because of our use of a black box model. And then, and then the test that we do is, is not a strong test, right? Like de- deciding that an overfit algorithm looks good in one sample of data drawn from a big data set and another sample of data drawn from a big data set, that, that's not really testing your hypothesis. So, so we really have to shift away from this sort of like medium, you know, and, and like there's a, there's a really funny video about a, a, you know, a fictitious Python programmer who goes from, I learned, I just learned this on medium. Do you want to write a medium? And, and so like, we have to, we have to move away from this sort of medium concept of what data science is and, and go back to the scientific method, which would say, write down a hypothesis and don't change it uh, to make your results look better. And, and that's mostly what we do in machine learning, as far as I can tell. Uh, so write down a hypothesis. I think that hypothesis should be about the effect, the intended effect of your model in the real world, not mm-hmm. about, you know, is a neural network better than a random forest or something like that. So, so write down your hypothesis, have that hypothesis be about the intended effect of the model in the real world. Use a transparent model, which may not be possible for some sort of NLP, natural language processing or computer vision processes, but, but for structured data, um, there, there are many types of machine learning models that are very transparent, that, that, that perform just as well as, as so-called black box models. So use a transparent model so that you can understand if the model has any construct validity and then test, try to do an actual test, like an A-B test, of whether your model is delivering the intended effect in the real world or not. And so, so it's really a complete shift from, you know, dumping bad data into a black box model and pretending it works to, to actually practicing science. It's, it's a very big, it's a very big shift, but um, I expect that, that as companies and organ, other organizations become more serious about their AI systems returning value, that, that we will see a shift to this. Because, because getting back to this notion of, of systems that cannot work, it, it's very likely that if you just pour bad data into a black box, it, it can never work, right? It's, it's just money and time down the drain. And, and so I think as companies become more and more demanding that all this money they spend on data science actually return, you know, provides a return on investment, we'll, we'll see a shift to people actually trying to do science. Yeah, and there's certainly, I mean, 
Obviously, in the press, we see lots of outcry against biased models or just models that don't affect change in the way they were intended out in the wild, in the public sphere, but also even in the, you know, more corporate sphere. Certainly, we've also seen a lot of recent research that says for all of the discussion of AI and its benefits, and here I'm kind of talking about it as an umbrella term, so machine learning, deep learning, NLP, natural language processing or, or computer vision, that still very few companies are really deploying this for good effect. And I've started to wonder if in some cases, because of all these issues, and it can sound very overwhelming, that AI might be simultaneously overhyped and undervalued for a lot of organizations, by which we're expecting both too much or some magical outcomes from from these systems, and we're not seeing them. But we're also missing some germane opportunities to drive value with AI and and what might be seen as much more mundane applications, very back office, you know, operational problems, where, as you said, the type of data and the nature of these systems actually comes together very well. It's not sexy. It's not fun. So in your experience, are organizations leaving value on the table with AI? And how can they address those kind of opportunities? Well, I I think you said it correctly for the most part. So, so, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's, here's one. So, so I, you know, I teach about these, these topics too. And, and, you know, one thing that I use in my teaching a lot and, and I, I sit on the board of the AI incident database. So, you know, just, just being transparent in case there's any conflict here. So I use these AI systems failures, which there's thousands of reports, public reports of AI system failures. And, and if you haven't seen the AI incident database, it's it's good reading. It's it's anything from hilarious to horrifying. You know, so a lot of times my students, at, you know, say, hey, you spent all semester telling us how these systems fail. You know, how, how do they work? And so, again, getting back to this theme of there's no magic, you know, if you're being really ambitious with AI, then you need to be really ambitious with your spending and the resources that you plan to put behind mm-hmm. it and the time that you plan to spend on it, right? Why does, you know, why does Google search work so well? Why do certain military applications of AI work so well? Why does AI work fairly well in consumer finance? Because all of these organizations have spent billions of dollars over years, with, with literally the best people in the world to make these systems work. So, so I think you're right that, that many organizations could take a much more common sense, um, brass tacks approach to AI and machine learning and get much better results, right? How can I optimize back office data-driven procedures with machine learning? That, that's where machine learning really excels if you don't want to spend billions of dollars over decades. So I think you're right about that. And if you do want to be ambitious with AI, um, you have to open up your wallet and you have to wait a long time for it to bake. And, and, and that's simply because there's no magic, right? There's no magic. And if you, look at, if you look at the organizations who were ambitious about AI and successful, they spent billions over decades. Interesting. Which I'm not taking to mean that you're telling smaller organizations or the non-digital natives that AI is out of their wheelhouse, but again, that they need to... A, make mindful investments and, and be prepared to do that, but also target the technology at, at the areas that, in fact, they can impact. Yeah. And and there's just, you know, AI is, is the, it may be important to unpack what we mean by AI, right? Yeah. Some people mean these massive billion dollar systems that were developed over decades. Some people mean, you know, a two variable 
model that, that just takes the average of both variables. And, you know, papers published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, you know, what they will say is if you're trying to make decisions based on social outcome, you know, about social outcomes, those two variable models that just kind of take the average of two variables, that's the way to go. Um, and don't expect to be particularly right. You know, expect to be right about 20% of the time, and maybe you'll just be a little bit less biased um, than, than we were in the past. You know, machine learning also works really well on learning about data. So learning about how to clean data and things like this, I think are great applications of, of true machine learning. And then we have, you know, the very ambitious programs like you might see in the military or in banking and hedge funds or in Google search. Um, and those are, those are extremely ambitious programs that, that require extremely ambitious resources. So, so I think, you know, there's all kinds of ways to build models. Humans have been building models for maybe millennia. Um, models are not guaranteed to be right. They're just a way to understand reality. There's all different ways to do it. And, and you should think about what kind of model will actually help your organization and not default to this internet conception of data science where we use bad data in the wrong models. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think if I was, that, that's how I would try to break it down. That, that's how I would try to break it down for smaller organizations that want to dip their toe in this, you know, be be smart and be more clear about what you mean by AI and what you want to do with it and, and try to tackle it in a way that actually makes sense and doesn't just buy into the hype around technology that essentially doesn't work. Yeah, and that mention of the uh, National Academy of Sciences sparked another thought. A lot of our early AI discussions seem to be focused on people being very excited about AI as an autonomous agent or mm -hmm. AI as the decision maker. Mm -hmm. And even here... I'm using this language very poorly, right? Using an AI system to make decisions is really what I should be saying, as as opposed to imbuing it with some human objectivity and, and agency. But the conversation does seem to be shifting slightly away from this idea of AI systems as autonomous agents or even independent decision makers, which I think is really positive, and, and even going beyond human in the loop to you know, just who are just there to oversee the AI systems to the idea of human and AI teaming. What are we learning or have you seen about how to best utilize AI as an assistive tool, as a decision-making engine, if you will, or, or an input rather than an independent or autonomous agent? Sure. That, that's a great question. And, and um, I was recently invited to, to present at the National Academies. And, and while I really thought I might get struck by lightning or the building might burn down <laughs> or something when, when I walked in, none of that happened. And, and uh, you know, one, one publication that, that the National Academies has just put out is about human AI teaming. And so I really think that's where the smart money is right now. And, and that is very difficult, right? Like, it's incredibly difficult to make an AI system that, that makes better decisions than humans and that you should trust with your business. That That's incredibly difficult. Um, but it's still difficult just to make a, an AI system that, that works well with humans. But but I think that is where that is where you might get the biggest bang for your buck in, in terms of minimal investment, maximal payoff. Um and, and really, this is aligned a lot with, with you know, traditional analytics that the companies like SaaS have been have been working with for decades. Right. We just want to balance out our human intuitions and our human experiences with data because because, you know, 
it turns out neither neither are perfect ways to make decisions, but but maybe working together we might we might sort of balance each other out. And so you know the 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 National Academies did just recently put out a, a long almost book about human AI teaming, and um, one one of the biggest tricks there is is how humans interpret results from computers. Which which if you talk mm-hmm. to any psychologist or any user interaction user experience expert, you know that that that's a very tricky tricky part of, of getting things right with, with even human AI teaming um, is, is just all the different difficulties in, in that humans have interpreting results from computer systems. Um, and, and there's lots of other, you know, there's lots of other gotchas too, but, you know, just, just to, to stay positive, I would say if I was going to invest big in, in quote unquote AI right now, I, I would be looking more towards how do I augment my people with, with so-called AI systems versus how do I replace my people with so-called AI systems. Yeah, and there's some really fascinating research right now about, as you said, how do humans perceive inputs and outputs from machines. And we had a chance to talk with Marisa Chop, and she's a human AI interaction researcher and just a fascinating conversation yeah. about our tendency to both distrust and overtrust. Mm-hmm. It's it's a sketch 22 in, in all aspects. So for folks that haven't listened to it and are interested, I'd recommend giving that one a listen as well. Well, and just, just really quickly, I'll say, and, and just this is really just me being in D.C., not not sort of having much involvement with the military myself. But but, you know, if you look at the programs in DARPA and the programs in the Air Force and, and the programs where where they're really working on these mission critical sort of augmented decision making technologies psychologists play a huge role mm-hmm. in those systems, right? And and we're talking about some of the most famous, you know, sort of HCI, human computer interaction psychologists in the world are, are you know, playing a big role in these programs because it it's just a huge part of it. A, a huge part of it is that human computer interface. It's not my area of expertise, but um, really, really crucial to getting things right. So before we let you go, I'd like to flip back to the other side of this coin. Uh, you talked about being on both sides of the, the data mm-hmm. science and the, the legal and risk mm-hmm. management side of the house. And BNH.AI is obviously focused on helping clients really prepare and address legal and compliance issues to manage risk. Mm-hmm. What are the trends that you're seeing with companies? And are companies doing enough today to be ready for both the existential and, and legal risk and legal environment that's developing here? What I've observed is it's really only the largest organizations, both both in terms of commercial organizations and and government agencies, um, that that are starting to come to terms with with risk management around machine learning. And I think that just points to where we actually are in the adoption cycle, right? Everybody can say they're doing machine learning. I'm sure in many cases they are, but... If you really want to base your business on it and you really want to be successful with it, you're going to manage risk around it just like you do with every other important piece of technology. And so so what we see right now is is I think it, it's really the companies with the deep pockets, with the you know armies of PhDs, with the with the long running experience in technology that are starting to, to take action on on risk management around AI. We do we do work with with some smaller companies, particularly smaller companies that are working in extremely high impact areas, and and so that you know it, it it's great to see that as well. And so I you know I, I'd say in the end it's it's kind of a mix between 
you know, sort of the usual subjects, big, big companies and big government organizations who have been at this for a long time, and then smaller companies who are working in really high impact areas. You know, they, these are the companies that are reaching out to us to get help with to get help with risk management. But again, you know, I, I'd like to emphasize the statement that if a technology is important to an organization, they do risk management around it. And, and so I think, mm-hmm. you know, if if you're proclaiming that that AI or machine learning is important to your organization and yet you're not managing the very significant risk around such a new and dynamic technology, you might want to think about doing some risk management around it. Yeah, we did a, it was a global study called AI Momentum and Acceleration. And, and it was a comparative back to a study we did back in 2018 on AI adoption and maturity. And one of the findings that was, frankly, for me, somewhat terrifying was that I think probably 73% or something like that, so a huge majority of people said they trusted AI-enabled systems to make decisions for them. At the same time, as about 50% said that sort of risk and concern about both ethics and just you know, basic risk management were a constraint and, and issues like trust kept them from moving forward. So there was, a, there was a little bit of a dichotomy there. But of those folks who said they trusted AI systems to make decisions, a minuscule amount, I think it was less than 30%, said that they had ever actually had to rethink, redesign, or change a system, an AI system, when it was in, in practice. And I'm not sure if that's because of the nature and size of those what those quote-unquote AI systems really are, or because we're not finding these problems because we're just not looking for them. But in any case, knowing the nature of these systems and the fact that they're probabilistic and non-deterministic and they they change with time and they do error, right, in rather significant ways and can go rogue in the wild so fast, you know, not the least of which is due to factors like what you talked about before, which is not doing really good real-life verification, right, and validation to make sure that the data you've trained something on is actually reflective of the real world, and it's always not going to be exact, but, you know, it's good enough for the situation. And so this, it, it was a confounding and, as I said, slightly concerning finding. And, and it may be due to just we're at the really early stages of adoption and, and the types of use cases. But I also wonder if it's people not just being mindful enough about what the actual risks might be here. I, you know, one one thing that I like to fall back on when trying to sort through these issues is... I, I think, you know, and, and people, other people have said this too. I, you know, I'm not sure exactly who to give credit to here, but, you know, in in 99.9% of cases, machine learning is just software, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure there are instances of machine learning that that are embedded in firmware and, and things like this, but, but just broadly speaking, machine learning is software. And so... You know, it, it's just it's just mind boggling that that you know some kind of software that a big enterprise or big government agency was going to use to make serious decisions. You know, we go through years of testing, and people would would you know have all kinds of documentation and and best practices, and be following you know NIST frameworks and and SANS Institute frameworks, and um, you know have armies of product managers and testers, and then it's like. Oh, over in the corner, we have this group of brilliant data scientists. They're doing AI and machine learning. Just let them do whatever they want to do and deploy it as fast as possible. Like th- that dichotomy is is just purely driven by hype. And if and if you think of AI as software or spreadsheets, um, it, it's a lot easier to be sane about it. And and so I think that that's another you know no magic. It's just software. 
treat it like other mission critical software that you use and, and you'll be in much better shape. Yeah, such a good point. And I guess back in the day, we always thought of analytics systems, right? The data warehouse, it was separate from the operational systems and they were on their own little island. And I wonder how much of that historical thinking also is impacting us when we're not thinking about these AI-enabled systems as, in fact, operational business processes. So great point. Past this prologue. <laughs> That's right. The work you're doing is, I think, going to be increasingly important and is, is so very interesting in bringing together, as you said, uh, you can't divorce the legal environment from the operational environment and the data science environment. Any words of wisdom or lessons learned you would you would leave with the audience? Well, of, of course, I think the, the legal aspect is is very important, but and, and, and probably, you know, I think the reason I was drawn to it is because if you're a big corporation or big government agency, you know, I, I would say that that your biggest risk is safety, right? You could deploy these systems yeah. and they do kill and hurt people today. They've already killed and hurt many people. So, so I would say, you know, we, we need to reframe from this notion of get bad data, train a model, draw another sample of that same bad data and decide <laughs> that the model works on that and we have a good model. We need to change away from that mindset to, to, a, more, to a, a real product mindset, which is safety is most important, then, then probably legality. And of course, safety and legality are, are tied together. But, you know, as an example of them not being when an Uber ran over someone in 2018 for, for reasons that I can't explain, you know, Uber had no criminal liability there and all the criminal liability was placed on on what was very likely a contract employee safety driver who had very likely been told that nothing could go wrong. But but we need to refrain from from kind of the silly notion of what data science is to thinking first about safety, then about legality then about real world performance, and then back to this sort of notion of how do I do on test data? So it's like how you do on test data is, is perhaps the fourth most important thing you should be thinking about. The number one most important thing you should be thinking about is safety. Number two, legality. Number three, does it work right in the real world? Number four, did it work right in the lab? So so I'll, I'll leave us on that note. Wise words indeed. Well, thank you, Patrick, for shining what is a very timely light on the importance of both science and critical thinking in the application of AI, and not to mention the implications of these rapidly evolving regulations and legal implications. Uh, thank you so much. Very welcome. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. So next up, we are going to be joined by Mark Kukelberg to discuss the political underpinnings of AI and how political philosophy may help us better understand AI's influence on society today. Subscribe now so you don't miss it.